in reading with us and you'll see something interesting as Paul is ministering in Acts chapter 13. He says this, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And so it makes a lot of sense as he is ministering in there in that missionary journey, uh, as he is doing that work, he is actually giving a message that lines up uniquely and specifically with everything that we've been reading in Galatians to this point, uh, that Jesus does for us things that the law never could. Jesus does for us uh, things that our own works never could. Jesus provides for us things that we could never have for ourselves. And that is, if you're kind of like, man, I feel like Galatians is getting redundant. I get it, I get it, I get it. No, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, it is so easy for us to move along and go, okay, we've got the grace thing. Now, let's focus on some other stuff. And you just can't do it. So that's why this letter, and that's why we sing what we sing, and we pray what we pray, and we remember what we remember about what the Lord has done for us. So we're in chapter 4. We just did seven verses last week. We're going to be in the middle section this week, and then we'll end chapter 4 next week with an allegory. We don't get to preach a lot of allegories. So a real-life New Testament allegory coming our way, but it's of the Old Testament, so... It'll be fun. Looking forward to next week as we get to discuss allegory, but also this week. We'll be in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Let's read what Paul has to say here. Formally, speaking to the Galatians, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, the Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good of to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Pray with me. Father, the passage today is a truth that we all need to hear. That you know those of us who have faith in your Son, you don't have passing knowledge of us, but you know us inside and out. You've claimed us, and we thank you. Guide our hearts today as we go through your word. Teach us your truth, we pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. Well, some in this room are probably familiar with the, uh, there's a famous bank robbery in the 1970s, but it wasn't here, it was in another country. People held against their will, held hostage, and then over time, as police began to try to negotiate, what started to happen But the hostages started to resonate with the bank robbers. They started to go, no, they're nice, they have our best interests in mind, they really care about us, they're interested in us. Then they started to worry that the police were going to potentially hurt them. So the police now are the bad guys, and the hostages are the good guys. And if you haven't heard this before, we have a phrase for it, Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome, where you... It's a psychological reaction to those of us who are in fear of something. Specifically, the connection between, for example, hostages and hostage takers. It's a way we try to survive. Something that happens in us where we go, these people aren't that bad. They aren't that harmful. They really do have our best interest in mind. And we might think that that's just an incredibly bizarre way to live. Why would we do that? No one, no one who knows the right thing would ever do that. These people must be crazy, but they're not crazy. Something happens where they go, we have to find a way to make life work in this moment. And unfortunately, that is the case for many Christians. Maybe that is the case for you now or has been the case for you at some point in time where you're captivated by the world. It's just all around you, and you're trying to find some kind of way to make an accommodation for it in your life. It's okay to like certain things or live certain ways or do certain things. It just kind of makes sense, and you start to identify more with that than you do with Jesus. You don't run to Jesus anymore. You run to your work or you run to your effort to try and go, look, this is okay. Look, I can do this. I'm fine. You think you're okay, but you're not okay. If you listen to anything that has been read or spoken about in Galatians up to this point, then you know claiming works as your standing before God being right or wrong is always wrong. Claiming your action or activity or your uh, smiles or your giving patterns or whatever it might be, that, that that is the way that God likes you or loves you is absolutely wrong. And yet, we do this. We give ourselves over and we go, well, this is, this is, this is a, it's a good way to make sense. And the Judaizers are there in Galatia, so they're teaching a certain way. And uh, they're, they're sitting around going, I, you know what, maybe they're not that bad. They're all right. I get what they're saying. I like their teaching. It's okay. Like, Jesus hasn't left. We just have to adjust how we view it a little bit. Well, today's passage gets personal. It has been autobiographical in chapters 1 and 2 where Paul's writing about his conversion and what has happened and his message. All of that has gone on in 1 and 2. In chapter 4, in this part, he's beginning to say, hey, look, remember when we were together? Remember what we talked about? Remember what we did? Do you, do you not remember these things? How you cared for me and my need and how you received me so well, even in that moment, even though that was a temptation to you, you could have rejected me, you didn't do that. And so, 
this passage breaks down 8 through 20 in really just two parts. And you'll see it if you're following along here. It's harder on your phone than you can use your phone because you can kind of find where the paragraphs are. But if you just kind of have your paper Bible there, you can see the paragraphs 8 through 11 and 12 through 20. Those are the main breakdowns. 8 through 11 and 12 through 20. And he basically says two things. In the first part, he says you're better off with Jesus. You're better off. In the second part, he wants him to recognize, he kind of goes back in time, recognize what has happened so you know what's going on in this moment right here with the Galatians there, the Judaizers there in your midst. So we'll look at both of those. 8 through 11. We should know this, but we don't. You're better off with Jesus. You're better off with Jesus. I mean, it's true every time. Like if you have the option of taking Jesus somewhere or not taking Jesus somewhere, take Jesus. If you have the option of considering, well, how might the Lord Jesus view this situation? What does his word have to say about that? Or let's go ahead and ignore it. Don't do that. Like, like Jesus is better for us. His thoughts are better. The spirit that is guiding us is better. And yet, we're kind of like, well, I don't know. People on TV are kind of smart. Let's listen to that. So in 8 through 11, he talks about salvation for them. He says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, before the gospel was proclaimed to you, you were enslaved by those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You look at what happens here, the statement of what used to be, formerly... It's a pretty good marker. Formerly, not how you are now, but how you were then. Formerly, you didn't know God. You didn't know God, and you were enslaved. And notice Paul doesn't say in that what fools you were. He says they're foolish because of what they're believing now, that they're going back. He says that in chapter 3, foolish Galatians. He doesn't say, man, I can't believe you guys didn't get it by then. He just talks about it rather matter-of-factly. Formerly, you didn't know God. And you were enslaved. That's how your life was. This is the reality for every person who doesn't know Jesus. Enslaved by this world. By things that are not God. And you might be sitting here today going, that's not the case. I don't feel enslaved. It's a free country. I live in America. All is well. I have good friends, I'm happy, my life is in order, bank account's doing okay, I don't really feel enslaved. If I had to say anything, I feel pretty good about myself. I would say this, you have Stockholm Syndrome. You're identifying with this world because it makes a whole lot of sense. Like It doesn't feel good to have anybody say, I think you're wrong. We're kind of like, ugh, get away, we don't want that. So there's this difficult thing in our hearts where we are being told by the Lord, like, you're enslaved. Formerly, you lived this life without Christ enslaved to this world. I'm like, I don't want to hear that. But we've kind of learned how to accommodate that mentality. So it doesn't feel like we're being enslaved. But honestly, we're being held hostage if we're not in Christ we have not put our faith in him, we're being held hostage by 
this world. I might even say this, you like your sin. You like it. You enjoy sinning. You think it's kind of nice. Feels good to reject something or feel a certain way or just kind of have to remove concerns that might exist in your life or try to medicate or remove how you feel about yourself or just the fact that you know you're not measuring up but you, for a day or a week or half a month or whatever it might be, you feel like you can ignore it or kind of push that aside. Feels kind of nice. And it's funny because we're dealing with something, even in those moments where we're running to sin to try and feel better about our sin, it's funny in those moments because in that we're even kind of saying this is slavery. I'm not free. I'm not free. I'm living, I'm living as a prisoner to what's going on in this world or the opinions of others about me or that I perform a certain way or look a certain way or act a certain way or operate a certain way that, that people's value of me is really all that matters. It's a terrible position to be in. And yet so often, so often, and I, I, like, I have a few pastor hacks, I don't have a lot, where you just have to look at people and you say, God loves you. God loves you. You're all right. Stop thinking crazy. Remember what he says. It's all of the book of Galatians really is. It feels like it's, hey, look, 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 look at what's going on. And then he changes his lines. He goes, formerly you lived this way. Everybody without Christ lives this way. And the Galatians, they put their faith in Jesus. They formerly lived this way. But now, that's the transition. Now that you know God, or rather, and I love this, you're known by God. Two perspectives that are given. Now that you have come to know God, this is our knowledge of our salvation. Oh, yeah. And I put my faith in Jesus at whatever age, if you have that, or whatever it might be. I, I, I know God. We know God as Father. We just talked last week. The Spirit of Christ in us allows for us to cry out, Abba, Father. But then there's this turn, almost a correction. Paul goes, no, Wait. It's not that you know God. Lots of people claim to know God. Lots of people claim it. Lots of people go, oh yeah, I know God. I was in the church every time the doors opened when I was a kid. I know God. And what do they often do to claim their knowledge of God? They point to stuff they did. I was at the church for this amount of time, or I got baptized at this age, or my family was a part of this, right? So when we say that, we often point to things that we do in order to claim our status with God. And Paul turns it. He goes, no, rather you're known by God. You're known by God. People take their social media presence really seriously little too seriously. So they'll post a picture of their vacation or their kids or their hobbies and uh, their shoes. It's kind of just a picture of their shoes. And they sit back and they wait for the likes and the comments to roll in. They want to see who pays attention to them, who's interested who comments, who makes me feel valued. You're often, I mean, come on, you're often looking for certain people to recognize what you're doing and what you're saying and how you're living. You're looking for it. 
you're seeking validation, and you just kind of go, well, hold on, let me just see here. Okay, nothing, maybe, you know, the algorithm's messed up. Let's just go ahead and I'm going to delete it and repost it. Maybe I did something wrong, you know, I'm going to change my settings because clearly somebody should have liked this by now. And then you're like, Mom, Right, this feels lame. Like I don't want mom to like it. Like, <sighs> start over. Didn't say it right. Right, if mom or grandma likes it first, something's something's wrong. Sometimes, if you're super lucky, like super lucky, you mention someone, and then they like it, or they comment, or they respond, and then all of a sudden, like your kids could be taking their first steps, and you're like. Oh my gosh, they liked it. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? You go, well, kids take, they, they walk all the time. That's old hat. First steps, second steps, third steps. I'm going to get a video. No one's going to know it's the fourth steps because I was over here focused on the likes that I was getting and somebody commenting on it. And I'll seriously, I mean, these are conversations that people will have. Hey, did you see what so-and-so said to this? Did you hear about what they said to this post? Did you see what they're doing over here? Did you get their message? Did you see that? I'm just like, is this really how we're going to live? Based on how people on the internet view us, this is how we're going to define our identity and our joy and our hope and our heart? I mean, friends, here in the Lord, God knows you. Like, you have an eternal like button hit, and you're living for other people telling you that you're doing okay. He knows you if you are in him, in his son, faith in Jesus. You are known by God. Why are you chasing after likes from this world? Why are you chasing after other people's comments and other people's ideas and other people's thoughts and other people's interests? Why do you spend so much time consumed in other people's view of you when God knows you? When you can call him Father, when you are brought into an eternal relationship, and yet so often we're caught up in what other people say about us and not what God says about us. So you have to think about this right now. Rather known by God, through Christ, God knows you in a unique and fraternal way. Now, what I don't mean is like God gets new knowledge of you. That's not what I mean. God does not get new knowledge of you. So how does God know us? Well, he knows everybody because he created us. Psalm 139, God who knit us together in our mother's wombs. But this passage isn't talking about how God created us. This passage is talking about God knowing us because he saved us. The difference would be between someone asking, somebody who might know you, hey, do you know so-and-so? And they go, yeah, I know so-and-so. Then me asking your child, do you know them? You go, yeah, of course I know them. Live at their house. Yeah. Right? There's connection here. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with God. And then there's a no. God's like, this is our home. This is our family, and you're in it. Totally different kind of knowledge Paul is talking about here. So what he's going to say then about this incredibly personal relationship that we have, that we have been claimed, that we have been adopted, he asked the question, how could you go back to the elementary principles of the world? 
How could you return to something that's not satisfying? How could you return to something that makes zero sense? How could you live for that? So stop for a moment and think about your own relationship with God. Have you been focusing more fully on the fact that maybe you know God because of your behavior or because of your lineage or because you just go, oh, well, that's how it works. But perhaps as you think about it, you realize, you know what? I, I, I honestly wouldn't be able to say confidently that God knows me like that. I claim to know God, but I actually, I actually base it all in the things that I have done. I base it all in the ways that I have lived. Well, if that's the case, you're in good company because everyone has done that. Everyone tries to claim some knowledge of God, some knowledge of how to be made right. It may, and I don't, when I say God, I don't mean necessarily we even say God. Some of us claim rightness with our own behavior or with our own life or with our own situation based upon certain things. We all do this. Every person in this room, you could be an atheist in this room today and you still have some kind of bearing, some kind of thought as to what makes your life okay and what doesn't. You have some kind of category, often based, for all of us, often based in just whatever we think is best and whatever allows for us to do the most things without feeling bad about them. But what Paul is trying to remind the Galatians of here is that they had trusted in Jesus. That they had lived over here in this way, enslaved to this world and to its principles. But the gospel was preached to them and they saw, he said, the gospel was preached in such a way that they envisioned Jesus crucified, that they trusted in Jesus. And he's going, how could you go back? Why? Why would you do that? Well, the Galatians are going back as if they were Jewish. Seems that even the Gentiles, the non-Jewish ones, were trying to do this too. They were just trying to go back and observe holidays and calendars and things, which is funny. I just chuckle a little bit because we spend a lot of time on calendars. But you're setting up your life around all of these things that you think make your relationship with God better. In such an error in, the, in life, if you read, Paul says this in verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And we'll get to this uh, in a few weeks, but it does sometimes feel like Paul is, is, is talking back and forth about the Galatians and their salvation, but in a couple weeks we'll talk about why that is not the case at all. That Paul seems rather confident that the Galatians, the ones he preached to, the ones who believed, believed. And he's spending time throughout this letter going, why would you change? Why would you operate this way? Why would you think like this? Why would you live like this? And he's going to start using time and time again illustrations as to why that is. So what he does here, I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain because it makes you wonder 
Any parent who has kids who do things that they wish they wouldn't goes, man, did I do something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Did I miss something? Did I not see it? How could I not have seen it? All these fears that kind of creep in. Well, what is Paul? I had a, had a mentor one time who called discipleship something that was just a great little word picture. He said, discipleship is really spiritual parenting. You're helping people grow from infancy to adulthood in the faith. You're helping them grow in knowledge of Jesus. And you have Paul, the spiritual father of the Galatians, going, man, I wonder what I did. I wonder if my labor was in vain. He knows it's not, but he's still asking the question. In the same way you as a parent go, did I do something wrong? You're like, I know I didn't, but sometimes I feel like I did. This often happens in instances when your children don't believe. When your children don't follow the Lord, and you're like, well, clearly, and you start to misquote a proverb, and you go, well, I didn't do it right, because if so, they would have continued to follow the Lord, and they, and they didn't follow the Lord, and so now I'm, now I'm lost. It can be like, did I do anything right for the past 40 years of my life? I don't even understand how this could have happened. Paul has confidence in who God is and what the Lord has done and what he is bearing through the Galatians, but still, as a spiritual father to the Galatians, he's going... You know, sometimes I wonder when I see this, if it was worth it. Like, did it, did it bear the fruit it was supposed to bear? He says this because, why? He knows that life is better with Jesus. That's been unwavering for him. That's been unwavering. It's not as if he's like going, well, maybe, maybe they're right. At no turn in Galatians chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, or anywhere in the New Testament do you see an author going, you know what, thanks for tweaking the message that I preached. I think on second thought, your view of it is more accurate. Because Paul's already said what in chapters 1 and 2? This isn't my view. I'm not giving you my view, which is the most freeing thing to do in evangelism or when you're just talking to people, even in moments like this. Right? You're just kind of like, the preacher just kind of gets to go, look. Look at what's going on here. What do we do about that? How do we contend with that? The evangelist just goes, look at what Jesus has done for you. And somebody might go, well, I think that's ridiculous. You're like, well, that's on you. That's not, that's not on Jesus. Like, he doesn't feel bad about you not believing in him. You're like, oh, maybe I should change the message so that so-and-so could come. Like, no. Right? God's unchanging. So he's not concerned about our approval rating of him. Paul is not concerned about whether or not the Galatians like him or don't like him because of the message that he preached. But he's concerned about them walking with the Lord. So what he's saying is, this is the message you heard. He's about to say, and this is how you lived. What's gone on? That's what he's going to do. So in the last paragraph, he basically says this. Consider what God has done, what he has done in your midst as a church, to recognize what is happening now with the Judaizers in your midst. That's something that we often have to do. You even hear the words of Jesus echoed in the book of Revelation, remember the height from which you have fallen. That's why every week we gather around the Lord's table and we take communion. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Consider what God has done to recognize what he is doing. Well, there are moments of weakness in my life and in your life. 
we walk with the Lord, moments of testing and trial, turbulence, or any other T that you want to find. Sometimes you wonder if you're missing out on something. You see somebody who doesn't know Jesus prosper, and you're like, well, maybe. I mean, did I, did I, did I do it right? Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe the church thing isn't all it was cracked up to be. Maybe there's, some, maybe there's more out there. You kind of want to prodigal son it for a little while and just go see what might be. Spoiler alert, he comes back. Paul knows that Jesus is better, but he also knows the Galatians have forgotten that. So he begins to get personal again. He reminds them of how they operated together, and I love what you are able to see here. Verses 12 through 20, brothers, and again, he's calling them brothers, not enemies. He's appealing to them as family. I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, it could be translated as, and though my physical condition put you to the test to see how you would handle me. You didn't scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus What's become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, the Judaizers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They, the Judaizers, want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. I love the way he says that. Make much of, much of, much of. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So he's saying, look at what we had together. It's almost rhetorically just going, do you really think that was fake? Do you think this way we lived was fake? I'm perplexed by it because it doesn't seem that way. And now you're over here with the Judaizers and look at how they behave. They're trying to kind of bring you off over into a corner and not let you talk to anybody else and you think that's okay. It's like, I just don't understand it. So a few items to note here, and I love it. Verse 12. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What's he saying? I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I had to essentially dismantle all of that in order to trust Jesus. I had to say this doesn't save. I had to confess my works meant nothing before God and that Jesus meant everything. I had to do that. So so come, become like that again. Have that mind about you. Because I had to do it too. Don't go take my mind that I used to have and make that yours. That doesn't make any sense. Don't add law to your salvation. If you do that, you change salvation. Become as I am. For I had to become as you are. And then he begins to talk about how he was amongst them. You did me no wrong right there at the end. You did me no wrong. Meaning, as I was amongst you preaching and ministering, you didn't treat me badly. 
you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you. And my condition was a trial to you. Though it was a trial, you did not scorn or despise me. So we get to see something cool. The reason Paul got to stay in Galatia and preach the gospel was because he was ailed. Because he wasn't well. And the Galatians had to take on both Paul's preaching and Paul's condition. You ever thought about that? Like we get, we get insider information here. You know that when I preached to you, it was really because I couldn't get anywhere. I was ailed. People try to guess what did he have? Was it his eyes? Because they would have gouged it out. Was it this? Was it that? I don't know and you don't know. But if you want to spend time making guesses, go for it. What you do know is that he had a bodily ailment that prevented him from ministering more broadly than in Galatia at that time. And the Galatians took him in. They accepted him as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. They treated him with hospitality. They were kind and considerate. They did not put him out or go, you know what, you've really started to tax us. You're being incredibly needy right now, Paul. And we need you to stop. In that, I want you to consider this. Have you ever considered how your own ailments or weaknesses or illnesses provide you with unique opportunities to minister to people? It was because of a bodily ailment that I preached to you. So often we look at what God has given us as problems. Oh, if only I could get healthy then. If only I could do this then. And I think about that even in in modern evangelical preaching, much of what you are getting to experience right here. If I have a cold, people check out. Right? If I'm starting to talk like this, I'm like, like, uninterested. You need preachers who are captivating and uh, who do their hair somewhat and are shaven. And, like, 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 you know, and Paul's like, I was really just a hot mess when I came to you and you took me in and you listened. Well, that's a sign of, I think, God forming something in people. When you accept weakness and you recognize it truly is strength. When you don't go, man, I couldn't invite my friends to the church at Galatia because we got Paul here and all he's doing is hacking up lungs every time he tries to talk. You know, I have my water right here just in case because you guys have had to bring it to me many times. Right? So it's funny because it, we, we talk in earthly terms like, do they have the package? You know, can they, can they command a room and can they exposit the scriptures and can they do these things with authority and with integrity? And you look at Paul and... Not that he didn't have those things. But it's interesting because he's even mocked sometimes for being too timid when he's in front of people. Too quiet. Doesn't have this big, thundering preacher voice. So consider what you might even have that the Lord hasn't removed. How can he use that so that others might know of him, that they might hear of him. Rather than viewing them as things that we just must cast off if we're going to be effective, perhaps recognize that they might be a part of our effectiveness, our weakness, our ailments, our hindrances. God uses. Because the message is not dependent upon the strength of the one bringing it, but of this, on the strength of the one who is it, 
Jesus is the message. The messenger's strength is not the concern. It's the Lord's. This is so important for us to remember, and I love that we get a glimpse into how it went. Paul was ailed, people were there, and they cared so much about him. And then in verses 15 and 16, he starts to wonder, well, what happened? Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? My message hasn't changed. Why now do I feel like, why must I defend myself and spend the first third of this letter to you telling you the truth that you already know? What has happened? Remember when we were, it was in the fall, we were doing giving, we were preaching on giving, which is everybody's favorite subject. It honestly is one of my favorite subjects to talk about at any time. And as we were reading in 2 Corinthians, we were, we were hearing Paul use argument. He started with this primary argument of Jesus became weak for you. He gave himself for you. So giving should just be a no-brainer because it's reflecting Jesus. And then he talks about all these other reasons. So he starts with like this you know, primary reason, and he's like, but look at what happens when you give. Right? You get glad because you get to give, and then the people who receive from you, they're really glad, and then they're praying for you because their need was met, and they're rejoicing. And so you're, and essentially, people are rejoicing and worshiping and glorifying God because somebody stepped out in faith and they were trusting God to meet their needs. And so he starts to talk about all these other reasons. And you can see that same kind of flow here in Galatians 4. Jesus is better. Why would you go back? And then he gets personal and gives kind of sub-reasons. Look at, look at how you lived, and now why would you do this? Why would you live like this? Why would you focus on this? Why would you care about calendars and dates and times and structure and maybe even sacrifice, however it might work? Why would you live like that? There's no joy there. There's no hope there. Then, 17, 18, 19, he starts to talk about what happened when the Judaizers came in. And not only what happened, but we get to see what happens to a congregation when they give themselves over to false teaching. And this happens every time. It's not just in Galatia. It would happen here in Genesis. It would happen in any other church. It would happen in your community group. This is what starts to happen. Because you have this kind of way of viewing something that you really have to hold as exclusive. So for the Judaizers, what is it? Christ is great, but you have to add the law. You have to do this. Otherwise, God is not happy with you. Well, if you let the Galatians talk to too many people, they're going to potentially realize that that position is in error. So the Judaizers kind of have to wall off the Galatians. They have to flatter them talk about them, and keep them from interacting with other people who might go, that's foolish. Look at the ways that this happens. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They boast in the Galatians. They boast of you. They have zeal for you. Who doesn't like being around people who like seeing them? Everybody. 
When people like to see you, you want to be around them. Well, the Judaizers know that. They make much of you. When they're there, they're zealous for you. They're happy for you. They're glad to see you, but for no good reason. They're doing it so that their ends might be accomplished, not the Lord's. Secondly, they want to shut you out that you might make much of them. This is the walling off of the Galatians from the truth. They manipulatively, manipulatively shut the Galatians away from others in order to get their attention. That's well, necessary behavior if you want to control how people operate. You have, I mean, you have to find some way to keep them from operating with the outside world if you want to actually control how they live, which is what the Judaizers want to do. You corner them. You flatter them, but you don't let them leave. And it's funny is that toxic churches are notorious for this. You can't leave. You can't talk to other people. You can't engage with other teaching. You can't read other authors. Like, no, 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 no. You don't want to hear those things. You don't need those influences. Right? You write off every other person but you as a heretic so that it's somehow the Galatians' fault if they find something that the Judaizers don't teach. This is what happens when you're interested in just growing your own church. Paul replies, and I, and I really like his reply, verse 18. Man, it is great to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. What is he saying? I don't have the market on people investing in you, Galatians. It's not only about me. What I gave and what I do, you can read throughout Paul's epistles that he is incredibly happy and joyful when other people come and invest in a church that he planted or he was a part of seeing start. He claims no ownership of their success. He claims no ownership of their failures. He trusts the Lord to do the work. So he says, it's great when people encourage you and they have zeal for you and they're glad to see you. That's awesome. And it doesn't only need to happen when I'm present. It can happen at any time, by any preacher, by any leader, at any church. It's great. Judaizers are the insecure leaders who don't want you to talk to Paul because you'll hear something different. Paul's going... If you want to talk to anybody else about this gospel, go for it. Because he's already listed. Yeah, Peter heard it, James heard it, John heard it. They were all cool with it. Like, if you want to talk to anybody else who's, you know, tracking down in this direction, go for it. And then he says this, I wish I could be with you. You'll see that, that concern in several epistles written by apostles. I, I wish I could be with you. There's just some things that are better said face-to-face than through a letter. Wish I could be with you because I really am just flabbergasted, use that word to wake you up. I'm perplexed by why you live this way. So what is he saying in all of this? Look, just turn around and look at our history. Do you really think it was all a waste? 
Paul doesn't think it was a waste. Do you really think it was all a waste? So maybe today you examine yourself and you think, man, I don't have the joy I used to have. I don't have the zeal that I used to have. I don't care as much about others as I, as I used to. I don't have the same enthusiasm for the Lord or for his word. I used to open up my home all the time to take in ailing Pauls, and now I don't. Now I'm just bothered by it. I don't want people to come into my house. As we reflect on that ourselves or become reminded of what used to be, it can be a reminder to go back to Jesus. There isn't like a, a magic potion. When you wander from your Savior, you will find life less joyful. You will find yourself less hopeful. You will be less encouraging. Why? Because you took your walk into your own hands. John 15, you've stopped abiding, remaining, staying, listening, because that's where fruit is born. In chapter 5, he talks about it. He talks about the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Deeds of the flesh are over here. If you're believing the wrong things, you're going to bear the wrong fruit. If you're believing the right things, you're going to bear the right fruit. You'll see it. I would encourage anybody feeling that just to ask this question. What might have happened in my life? So often, people, maybe in their 40s or 50s, they see somebody in their 20s with zeal. And what do they say? Oh, just wait. Just wait. You'll get married. You'll have kids. They'll not obey you. And then you'll really know what life is about. And I would just ask this question. Why even ask that question or say that? Why try and squish somebody's joy in the Lord? Like, and what benefit does that do except make you feel better about you being bitter about life? It does nothing. Paul's like, it's great for people to be encouraging. It's great for them to be loving. It's great for people to fan to flame. That's how the scriptures talk. Fan to flame what God has done in you. That's what he wants. Joyful, hopeful, grace-saturated, Jesus-focused people making up Jesus-focused churches that love and delight in him. That's what they want. That's where they focus. If you find yourself unlike wine and getting worse with age, which can happen really at any time, ask yourself, what's going on in me? What's going on in my heart? That's a good diagnostic question. It's hard for us to answer sometimes, but it's a good place to go. What have I done? Where am I focused? For me, being around young believers is the only way that I can keep my heart from becoming a bitter believer. They're like, oh my gosh, have you ever read this line in Galatians, known by God? Have you ever seen that? Rather than be like, oh yeah, all the time, totally. You can go, what did you see? Tell me what you saw. What are you seeing? 
What is God doing? What is he stirring? So quickly, I'll be like, nope, wrong, don't view it that way. That was for you, Jacob. Don't do that. Don't think like that. We want to so quickly be like this corrector rather than one who wants to go, no, come on. Think about the Lord. Consider the Lord. Fight for the Lord. Love the Lord. See what he's done. Like That's what we need to be, and that's what he's doing. So even though he's going, what's happened? He's getting them to look back and go, remember this joy? Remember this hope? Remember this love? Remember this care? Remember this hospitality? Do you remember that? Jesus died for you, and he cares about you. If we were perfect, his death would not be necessary. So can you go to him? Can you confess your sin? Can you ask him to restore restore your joy and your zeal and your hope in him over anything else? Can you go to him and can you say, Lord, I have been living for myself. I have never believed in you, and I surrender to what your son Jesus has done for me. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe you just need somebody to talk to and go, I'm not sure what's stirring in here. You may simply need to confess. Have people pray for you. And remember that Jesus loves you. That being enslaved to a prior way of living is not life even if you are trying to convince yourself that it is, that it is not hopeful, that it is not joyful. Do not live enslaved because Jesus is far better.